The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. How's everybody? Well, I must say, Ali, I'm very excited about this show. I remember back in the day when, Jules, how old are you now? Uh, 31. When 31 years ago, Ben wanted to get his PhD in AI. And I'm like, no, we got a baby. We got mouths to feed. You are not going to continue your education in AI because you got to get to work. So I'm very excited about this conversation. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, there was no viable way that I could get a PhD. I just had too many mouths to feed, so. Yeah, but <laughs> that, it definitely that was, was, it, it was. was a sit-down conversation, like, do we continue the education and do this other thing, or do we really do the family thing? And we chose the family thing. Maybe that was a good decision. We're going to mm. find out after this conversation, right? Or well, I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 But you get a master's. A lot to do with yeah, Edward, so. yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I got a master's as far as <laughs> as far as I probably should have gone anyway. So it's, yeah. It's well, the other, the other good news is that 30 years ago AI didn't work at all. So I think that was a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing that that, and it was the exact same. You know, it was largely the same AI <laughs> that didn't work. So it's it's funny. I I actually am fairly much more up to speed than I ever thought I would be, given uh, all the years that passed in between. But we'll get into that. So. That actually brings us to our topic. Today we're going to talk artificial intelligence, um, the singularity, sentient <laughs> machines, all that. Um, and so welcome to Boss Talk. Uh, with me I've got Ali, I've got Mark, we've got Felicia, and we're gonna we're gonna get into uh, we're gonna get into artificial intelli- intelligence. And we've got Ali, who is not only a professor of AI, but um, and has a PhD in, in AI for real. Uh, not just a story about how he didn't get one, and then also is the founder CEO of Databricks, you know, one of the most successful AI kind of infrastructure companies in the world. And so let's start, um, Ali, with uh, when you when we say artificial intelligence, like what does that mean? What is? Yeah, that's AI? complicated. Yeah, that's a complicated <laughs> question. You know, and you're asking someone who's been an academic. Yeah, and you're asking someone who's been an academic. So like. You know, if I give you the real answer, it's like, you know, everybody will leave the clubhouse room. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, it's meant many different things over the years. When we started Databricks, AI actually meant robotics and those kind of things in 2012. It didn't mean the same thing as it means today. Today, people also include machine learning and all those kind of things underneath it, you know. So I'm not going to give like some, um, you know, um, some academic definition of it. But what we do at Databricks is we focus on taking massive amounts of data and doing predictions based on those. And when we say AI, that's what we're referring to. You know, other people might mean other things, but taking massive, massive amounts of data and doing predictions on that data using, frankly speaking, really advanced statistics. Yeah, and you know, our, uh, you know, it's simple, but you know, in a way, it's profound in that. Um... You know, we have a partner, Chris Dixon, who kind of describes it as, you know, in software, we always had this tool, which was sort of procedural programming, you know, sometimes functional programming or other kinds mm-hmm. of things. But, you know, it's kind of one tool in the software toolbox, kind of like if you think about, 
the equivalent in math, it would be, okay, if you only had deductive logic, but you didn't have inductive reasoning, um, that's where we were with software. And then with AI, we added the other part. Um, yeah. So it's kind of this whole new problem space of combinatorically explosive problems that uh, you couldn't solve with whatever deductive reasoning. And so uh, so it is, you know, in a way it's simple, but it's, it's very powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, and, what really happened, yeah, yeah, I mean, Ben, what happened is, you know, I mean, the true story is the, the folks that are working on artificial intelligence for years and years and years, they were kind of obsessed with how does the kind of human brain work and uh, mm -hmm. human brain has right, a bunch the biological of biological model. Yeah, well, the brain has a bunch of facts and we do deductive reasoning on it, right? You know, so mm -hmm. there's this whole thing of like, how do we build something that can do that kind of deductive reasoning? Knowledge-based systems were built and, you know, logic-based programming and, you know, logic was an important, like mathematical logic, philosophy, all that, that was super important. And actually, I did a bit of that in my PhD in the early days, uh, but that's, that's the kind of AI that never actually worked. You know, they never really got great results. Uh, certainly the kind of things that like impress everybody today, when we think machine learning AI, none of that was that. Meanwhile, there were these guys that were sort of doing statistical techniques. They were using just statistics on data to see fine patterns. They weren't actually usually considered real AI. In fact, in many academic departments, they were kind of shunned and they were like in the statistics departments. And, you know, statistics and this is oftentimes- the machine this is the yeah. origins of the machine learning discipline. Exactly. And it was, you know, they yeah. were sitting in statistics department. They were not considered real AI, right? Mm -hmm. The real cool AI were the people that were actually doing this deductive stuff. These guys were just, you know, looking at using statistics on data. And the statistics department weren't even like really necessarily part of the mathematics department. So they weren't, it was, it was not the cool kids. Uh, but the guys who were doing this logic-based, let's, you know, reproduce how human mind thinks uh, they kind of had a really mm -hmm. hard time getting any good results. And meanwhile, the guys that were doing statistics, they just, you know, got better and better at it. And then the data sets grew and then the computers got faster. And then eventually we started collecting so much data that we had billions of people online on these sites, billions of people buying stuff. And then around 2012 was when those crappy algorithms from the seventies that didn't work that Mark was referring to, it suddenly became magical. It became superhuman. I think 2012 was when we showed that we can, with using machine learning and statistics on modern computers, using way more data than anyone had tried before, we could beat humans in classifying images. So we could better than humans say, this image is you know, a cat, or this is a human, or this is a car. We could beat humans at that. So that, that's one. And then what's happened at the university is that then everybody said, oh, wait a minute, that's AI too. And, you know, come over here, like we're all doing AI and it's like kind of, it's all kind of blended <laughs> together and, you know, everybody kind of uh, got on the winning side. Yeah, well, you know, and, and of course, you know, those idealized brain models weren't actually very accurate in that, uh, you know, the, the human brain doesn't, not only does it not work like that, but we don't actually know that much about how the human brain works. I'm <laughs> so modeling it on that, you know, may not have ever been a good idea. Well, we actually don't know how a mouse or a cat's brain works, you know, yeah. let alone the human brain. Like, we can't model a cat's brain. I mean, it's just Feynman said this in the Feynman lectures, like first chapter, right? Yeah. Which was like, you know, why don't we start with understanding like very basic animals' brains before we get to humans? Because, you know, we don't even understand that. Yeah. So my favorite, yeah. like, like you got like, like Ben, I guess I, I almost did. So I almost went into what they called at the time cognitive science. 
um, which was sort of AI neuroscience in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, and I didn't do it. And one of the reasons I didn't do it, so it's like, I think this is still the case, Ali, tell me. The the type of biomedical professional um, who knows the most about how the human brain works today or how consciousness works um, is the anesthesiologist. Um, and, the re- and, and the reason is because the anesthesiologist knows how to reach into the brain to turn consciousness off and then, and then, hope, and then hopefully reactivate it. Um, but that's basically still it in terms of our understanding of consciousness. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, they also do a lot of MRI, you know, and they look at, oh, you know, when you're happy, this part of the brain seems to heat up. And, oh, that part of the brain seems to react when this happens. And, you know, but it's frankly completely useless to the machine learning and AI that we do today. Like, that's, it's completely useless information. At least the approaches we're taking today don't get there. So you're right. Uh, And those guys, anesthesiologists aren't helping us much in in the machine learning we're doing today. (laughs) So absolutely. You guys, already, you guys already know where the off, off switch is. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like, right, well, it's like a so-called function, functional MRI, right? And it literally is like these psychological experiments where they literally, I mean, step one is they put you in a chair, right? Yep. And they attach sensors to you, and then they tell you to, like, do various things. Like, there's, <laughs> there are very yeah. entertaining experiments. You'll see these research results that have to do with, like, with sexuality and arousal. And, like, one of the very entertaining things to do, like, late at night is, like, look at how they actually run those experiments. And then ask yourself if you think that they're actually getting good data. Um, <laughs> let's just say, but by sitting sitting you in a chair and putting a probe on your head, and then yes, and possibly and possibly putting arousing you, yes, and then, and then trying to arouse you, and so like the whole field. I mean, that's the extreme case that always cracks me up when I read these studies. But um, yeah, I just think. I mean, look, I mean, you know, I I, I love science and I love research. And I'm glad they're looking into that. But like like as you said, it's like yes, this area of the brain lights up doesn't actually tell you much. And so, and this, this goes to this whole thing on this AI, which is like, you know, it's just like, we are so far away, and I'll, you know, see if you guys agree with me on this, but it just feels like, we are so far away with understanding how the brain works, we're so far away from understanding consciousness, we're so far away of understanding the whole concept of how to make a computer self-aware, and in fact, arguably, the nature of sort of machine intelligence that we're building is diverging further and further from what, however the human mind works as opposed to closer and closer. Um, Ali, would you agree with that, or do you think that's wrong? Uh, and not only that, I would go one step further, and I would say the people, the the, the winning me- method, the winning approach is the one that completely ignores that. It doesn't even attempt to do that. It just uses really advanced statistics on lots of lots of data sets. It's not trying to mimic anything. It's just advanced statistical techniques, and it's saying, look, computers have strengths that humans don't have. Like take Google search. We take it for granted now, but in some sense, you could say that it's amazing artificial intelligence in the sense that. It can, in half a second or less, return to you the results of what you searched in all of the web pages on the whole planet. No human brain could have ever done that before. You know, and that has nothing to do with how the human brain works. It's just amazingly good at that. And it's techniques like that that you just then continue doing more and more of, and you can do amazing things to augment humans. Uh, but you're no longer trying to answer these you know, super philosophical questions of like, what is consciousness? How does it really work? Could we replicate it? And so on. So you're, you're, I 100% agree with you. And by the way, very few people and it's, are on yeah. the problem. Yeah, and it, it's funny, you know, Michael Jordan, who, uh, you know, was a colleague of yours at Berkeley and kind of considered one of the, certainly one of the top AI professors in the world, often refers to it as statistics. <laughs> yeah, um, at yeah, least when I talk to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it is. It's statistics it's, yeah. on modern machines on lots and lots of data. That's all it is. And much more highly dimensional data. So much more data and then many, many, many more dimensions, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. 
So yeah, absolutely. And very few people are actually working on the problem of let's figure out, you know, building the ex machina and the thing that can do the consciousness and so on. There's very few people. So that's why I get so upset when like, you know, you, you look and Elon Musk is saying, oh my God, the biggest threat to mankind is these machines will replace us and, you know, eliminate us and other people like agreeing with it. It's like, nobody's even working on that. Uh, you know, very few people. <laughs> well, yeah. okay. So let's, let, let's get into that. So, um, so one question one. So what about the kind of Kurzweilian argument, um, that, uh, you know, we're going to have so much machine power that we'll have kind of more neurons than are in the human brain and eventually we'll be able to basically simulate the whole physics of the human brain on computers and at that point we'll reach a singularity and bang, zoom. Um, why is that argument, like, not quite true? Well, I'm not going to say it's not true and we're never going to get there. I'm just saying yeah. almost no one is working on that. Like, almost yeah. nobody. Like, you know... Databricks is probably the biggest private enterprise, probably the number one co company working on these things. There are lots of universities working on these. None of them are trying to really do that. I mean, there might be some research group somewhere like in, you know, in Switzerland that's doing this, like, you know, simulating, in fact, like a mouse brain or something like that. But generally, people aren't even working on that, you know. So like and, the thousands and, and thousands would, of people. Yeah. And you would say the kind of work that's going on in OpenAI and at DeepMind is not that either. No, not at all. It's very structured problems. You know, it's very structured problems where you give it an optimizer. It's, it's basically these basically statistical networks where you're giving it a function that you're optimizing. You're saying, hey, optimize this function for me and, you know, get me the optimal result. Trying to get the results to match what we saw previously like this. That's kind of what you're doing. Or, you know, there are fancier versions of it, like reinforcement learning. But in the end of the day, it's typically problems that are qu quite regulated. That's why this kind of techniques work so well on games. It's really good if you say, hey, you can only go left, right, up, down, and jump, and here's a score in the up to the right, maximize that score. Maximize that score. Do these techniques and learn how the moves are and maximize that. But if you say, hey, have a conversation here on Clubhouse and just creatively figure out where to take it and make it as fascinating as possible, you know, it doesn't understand. It can't comprehend or have judgment or understand the context, those, those things. So very few people are working on those things. So, so, so we may reach the singularity, but it's not because anybody is actually trying to create sentient machines. <laughs> it, would, it would be purely like some kind of random accident at this point. Very few people, at least at UC Berkeley, where I you know, see the students yeah. coming in, everybody's coming in working on these statistical techniques. Nobody's working on that problem of creating the sentient machine. There are some people at Berkeley that are working on, if we one day came up with sentient machines, how would we, you know, stop that? Uh, which I find kind of interesting. Like, it's like the hypothetical, of, oh my God, if that ha happens, what would we do about it? There are some people doing research on that, but I, I don't know anyone who's actually working on the problem of let's create sentient machines that can replace us. Okay, so Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Sam Altman, all these guys are very smart. Why do they keep trying to scare people with this singularity? talk then if it, nobody's actually working on it well I, I mean i don't know i mean i find them i find <laughs> it super i find it super funny when they say that it's like you know we have like uh, climate change you have people dying in wars like you know and they're worried about like hey what if someone actually what, what if we get to the singularity you know and then you're like well but nobody's working on it the probability of like this, that's not gonna like there's no evidence that that would ever happen they're like yeah but what if it would be so devastating it would be end of everything so even if the probability is almost zero but the consequences are so extremely bad when you multiply those two, 
Shouldn't we just spend some time thinking about it? And I think of it as navel gazing. I also think those people that you mentioned, they're different. Not all of them agree. I think some of them are actually just wrong. Uh, and I think others are a little bit more nuanced in that they're mm -hmm. saying that the machine learning we're doing today can be used in nefarious ways, which that's, that I can agree with. It could be used. Uh -huh. What we have today, right, in warfare, in other situations, definitely could be used in, in, in uh, uh, malicious ways. And that could be a big threat to mankind. Yeah. Well, give us an example of that. Like, how how would you use a how would I AI go badly wrong in a in a kind of either a, a physical or a cyber warfare scenario? I mean, look, just hypothetically speaking, it's not hard to create a drone that can identify certain types of people and eliminate them. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can so just that. using it uh, as an automated weapon, taking out all human judgment. Yeah, you can just say like in that city, make sure that you eliminate all the people that fit this particular profile. You could build that today with the mm -hmm. existing technology. You could probably have built that 10 years ago, in fact. And, you know, if someone wants to do that, that's terrible. Uh, so that's the AI that's, ethics, yeah. more so than the, the machine deciding what it wants to do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, could that go wrong and the algorithm gets wrong and then mm -hmm. it doesn't even, you know, destroy the humans that you wanted by, you know, error in software? Yes. Just like there are examples of radiation machines that killed people by radiating a thousand times more than they were supposed to because of a software bug 30 years ago. Yeah, got it, got it. Interesting. So, okay, well, let's kind of get down to like a little bit more practical uh, matter. So when you guys, so you started this big AI company, like why'd you start it given that, um, you know, kind of the big companies, Facebook and Google and so forth, had these such massive AI investments and, you know, kind of clearly had huge leads and in particular, like big leads on the data. Like what motivated um, you guys to start this company? And, yeah, and look, I think it was going to be a business. Yeah, look, actually, it was kind of shocking. When you go back to 2008 and nine, we were working with these companies. It's not the case that the rest of industry actually was doing AI. And AI was actually considered robotics at that time or, you know, it wasn't considered machine learning necessarily. These companies were doing machine learning, but the general public was not aware of it. And most companies on the planet were just collecting data. At best, they were using this thing called Hadoop, which was, you know, real piece of crap <laughs> software. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it didn't really work. Uh, and, and, you know, and we got to see what the, the fangs were doing, and it was amazing. And the results mm -hmm. they were getting was amazing. Like, for instance, Facebook, we got to see that they could predict couples breaking up many months in advance with high probability. Not only that, <laughs> yeah. they knew who they were. Yeah, and they knew who they were going to date next. Right? There was a All TV show. What was that TV show called where they had the AI like would predict who was going to get killed? Um, I forgot the name of it, but yeah, yeah. That's, that, so they, no, 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 no. It was like the network or something. I, I can't remember or the, I can't remember the name of it now, but yeah, that's, that's, that's spooky. So they could predict who is going to break up like with really yeah. good accuracy. With good accuracy and also who you're going to date next, who you're going to end up with next. <laughs> You know, and all this based on how you click on pictures, right? And the click stream yeah. of how you click on pictures, who you click on, what time of day you click on it, how long you go back to the same picture. You know, when that behavior changes, you can pick up a lot just based on that. And that was, I think, 2009. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah, and we were like, wow, this stuff is powerful. And Google had <laughs> technologies like this for other purposes and so on. And we were like, wow, we got to bring this to everyone. Like, you know, people got to see this. This is like amazing stuff. And Imagine if you unleash this on medicine or, you know, uh, on, on other fields, you could do a lot of good things. Uh, you could solve a lot of tough problems with this. 
but we were Berkeley hippies and we said, look, we'll just open source the technology and we'll change the world and it'll all be great. And, you know, and we'll move on to the next problem. Uh, but that's, well, so so, uh, yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a crazy thing. So how do you think, you know, when I hear that, I think about, okay, what's going on in China with, you know, kind of a potential survey and like how, you know, if the state kind of gets access to all the data and has like some monster AI running against it, then, you know, how far could that go? Will they be able to predict crimes before they're committed and all those kinds of things? Yeah, I look, I think the more important thing there is governments, mm -hmm. if they want to, can do really bad things to you. And that's not the new mm -hmm. thing. And that's right. been going on for a long time, right? Yes. And we should watch yeah, out yeah. for that. Like, you know, if, uh, you know, you go back to, you know, uh, East Germany uh, after the Second World War, you know, I mean, they're tapping you, tapping your phone, they do everything you're doing. And those kind of, and there's countries that are like that still today. So uh, can you use AI uh, cleverly to automate a lot of that, that the humans were manually doing? listening to you and so on yes you can uh but well, i think it's a general and problem watch everybody yeah yep they can yeah. but they were watching everybody in many countries you yeah. know 60 70 years ago they were watching everybody and listening to everybody and putting people in jail and uh so that's not a new thing so we have to make sure that our governments don't do those kind of things to their populations and other governments don't do those i don't think ai is the crux it's not like the ai got a life of its own and it's starting to snoop on people and now mm -hmm. these things are happening. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I remember uh, Christian Gheorghe telling me when he lived in the communist Romania under Ceausescu, uh, they would come in to read the meter, um, the power meter at two o'clock in the morning. And then if you had like a record album, they would arrest you because <clears throat> you're not allowed to buy music <laughs> in communist Romania. So it's a very different, different surveillance technique, but same result. Yeah, um, so they could be more efficient yeah. if they use techniques like that, but we shouldn't let them. So. You know, that's, I think, more of an issue of democracy. I think the threats, the things, bad things you can do with AI can be regulated. And it's, and they're typically not new things. Uh, you know, it's, the, the techniques are more powerful, but you can, still, it's the same things in disguise that happened 50, 60, 70 years ago. So we need democracy and so on. Yeah, and so what were, so why were the FANG companies um, succeeding with AI and the other companies not? Well, I mean, the thing is, these the, the particular techniques using neural networks, this is a particular technique from mm -hmm. the 70s. Um, mm -hmm. The common wisdom in universities were that they don't work. In fact, when I was at the university, I remember I had a professor, a British guy in networking, and I asked him, what did you do your PhD? And he said, oh, I did my PhD in neural networks in the 70s. And so what is that? Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, don't, don't mind. Okay, don't bother with that because it absolutely doesn't work. It was a waste of my life for five, six years. Whatever you do in your career, don't touch neural networks because it's like utter shit. It's like six years of wasted time in my life in the 70s. Uh, they just don't work. So yeah. when when these fan companies started using actually those very neural networks, we all thought, yeah, they're, they're full of shit. It's not going to work. That stuff doesn't work. It's mm -hmm. well known it doesn't work. But it turned out. Yeah, it was well known. Yeah. I, I know when I... So, so when I was uh, <laughs> hoping to get my PhD in uh, AI, as Felicia remarked, um, I remember we had a neural network that we built that could recognize like 20 of the 26 letters in the alphabet. <laughs> it didn't work at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, so it was kind of hard, uh, hard to kind of accept that, you know, these, these fine companies were saying, no, we're getting superhuman results. And we started yeah. looking closer at what they were doing. 
it turned out, yeah, they are getting fantastic results, like the breakups prediction and whatnot. And how are they doing it? Well, it turned out if you just dust off the same stuff that they had in the 70s and just use way more data and then modern hardware so that you can actually process it fast enough, then actually you get superhuman results. It's just that we didn't have those big data sets in the 70s and we didn't have the machines to process it. And if you do those two things and just use those neural networks and add just more layers and do some engineering tweaks to it, yeah. you actually get phenomenal results. And that's the big thing that changed. And that, you know, this happened around 2010, 11, 12. 12 was it really kind of started, the, the results started getting published and people started sort of waking up that, oh my God. And so around 2012 is exactly when we started discussing, hey, maybe we should start Databricks. And we actually met you in Berkeley. And so, you know, and then with Databricks, like, why did you think that um, other companies couldn't do what, you, you know, didn't have the capability to do what uh, Facebook and Netflix and Google were all doing? Like, well, wh why was yeah. it restricted to them? What was, what was so hard about the problem where you felt like, okay, there's a big company that can fill this gap? Yeah, look, uh, the fan companies at that time, they were solving the, these problems for themselves. So how do we put up good ads? in front of people? How do we recommend you good friends? And so on. And how do I show you the tweets that you mm -hmm. want to see? Those are the problems they were solving. They were solving it for themselves to drive engagement. They weren't necessarily helping doctors detect if there's a can you know, cancer in an x-ray, right? So the tools they had built yeah. are not the tools that you give to a MD, PhD, mm -hmm. right? So the, the, right. it just didn't work. So you, if you want to actually build tools that you can give to an MD, PhD, who then sits and analyzes x-rays, it's a different tool set. And also the consequences are more dire. Like if you do a wrong recommendation on a tweet, or if you tell, if you search for a cat, but I show you a picture of a dog, it's kind of funny, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if I you know, tell you that this, is, you know, this person has cancer and I'm wrong, or worse, don't detect it, the consequences are really dire. So it's just a different persona right. and a different product that's needed if you really focus on the enterprises. And they were not doing that. They were focusing on their own problems which none of them were like life and death. It was more like around recommendation and engagement and driving more usage. Uh, and then kind of when you talk about, um, you know, kind of building the right product, there there is this really big tool chain for software development that's, you know, been developed over whatever, 30 years, um, you know, from source code control and compilers and debuggers and, you know, on and on and on and on. Um, what is the kind of equivalent thing? Like if I have data, like what is the distance between having that data and getting to an AI model that makes great predictions? Like what is the software that's in between that? Yeah, that's actually the problem. So for software engineering, I mean, when we started software engineering a long time ago in the 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have anything. Right. It's yeah, like punch it cards. started, you know. Yeah, punch cards and like the for, first language was formal translation Fortran, and he had a little bit of abstraction, but it took a long time. Even compilers took a while before we figured out how to create them. But today, the reason software engineering happens on the planet at scale in all companies, you hire software engineers a dime a dozen everywhere, is because there is this ecosystem that has been developed over the last 30, 40 years. That ecosystem doesn't exist for data and AI. It's emerging, but it's not there. So that's actually one of the main things we try to do at Databricks, try to help build that ecosystem. So it starts with the data, right? I said the secret sauce is the data, and you want to start with that data, and eventually if you use massive data, modern hardware, you can get great superhuman predictions. But to go through that, you start with the data. And the data itself is something we don't have tools around. 
we don't have great ways mm -hmm. to test data. We have great ways to test software, but we don't mm -hmm. have a great way to make sure that, oh, you know, the data that's coming in is clean or it's the right data. Right. We don't have great ways to detect, oh, the, the, the data that's coming in is getting skewed and we have issues mm -hmm. around it. Uh, we don't have all these tooling for monitoring and testing it and creating sort of um, uh, the whole ecosystem around it. So that's that's making it really, really hard today. And that's one of our main focus areas to build that, to make these folks more productive. So basically what's happened today is companies that hire people that specialize on the data and they call, they're called mm -hmm. data ops people or data engineers. They hire data engineers mm -hmm. and they hire data ops people. There's a different title. And then they hire data scientists to do machine learning models. But then when you have the predictive mm -hmm. model, you have to actually put it in production. Like if you go to netflix.com and you get a recommendation for a movie, mm -hmm. that recommended movie on that website is a production use case for machine learning. So, And what's the difference? Website, what does that mean? Like what, what, what's the difference between like production and the kind of model that you train? Like what are the kind of steps that, to, that make something a production model that are hard? Yeah, look, the... To come up with a predictive model for recommending movies for you, I can I can use some computers. I can use my laptop, and I can build a model, mm -hmm. and I can iterate on it yeah. in a lab for a few months, and then eventually I might get a predictive model that's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I think it will go, do good recommendations. Mm -hmm. That, but how do we get that so that when you go to Netflix.com, the movies that show up there are actually based on that? That needs to be able to. That needs to be something that always works. It can't go down, right? Because you don't want to go to Netflix.com mm -hmm. and it's like a waiting, waiting, generating recommendations for like, you know, two minutes. Mm -hmm. So you have to do that immediately. It can't be hacked by outside hackers that go in and manipulate it. Uh, it's super reliable, and they need to be able to also upgrade it. So if there's a better model, how do they actually do that? So the people to, that do that are different types of people. They're concerned about production systems that are always up. They're sort of, you know, they're critical. Uh, they have uptime, reliability, security guarantees. Typically, that sits in IT. So that's a different persona. So then they hire people that they call ML ops that do machine learning operations. Uh -huh. And they yeah. have machine learning engineers that re-implement this stuff. So today, it's super complicated. You have to hire all these specialized people to just get this job done end to end. And the tooling isn't great. Mm -hmm. And that's our focus is how do we simplify that? How, we build a, how do we build this ecosystem? How do we automate this? How do we, by the way, apply machine learning to these problems themselves to automate them away. And so when somebody gets your product, like, so give me an example of like a, a use case where somebody, you know, needed to do AI and they got Databricks and then they were able to do something that was important. My favorite is, uh, frankly speaking, uh, and I keep going back to it, but I think it's so awesome example. Uh, Regeneron is a pharma company and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, people talk a lot about pharma companies, but here's what these guys did. They took Databricks, mm -hmm. they built up a genomic lake house on Databricks, which is a genome data set. So DNAs mm -hmm. of a million patients. So now I have all the patients' million oh. DNAs. They also built a phenotype lake house of data, on Databricks, which is all the diseases that these people have, like type 2 diabetes and so on. Then they mm -hmm. ran machine learning on it, and they could do that really fast and iterate orders of magnitude faster on Databricks. And they ran something that's called rule association, which lets you see is there a particular gene marker that's responsible for a disease or not? And mm -hmm. they found the mm -hmm. genome responsible for chronic liver disease. And they actually have a drug in testing now that actually is based on, uh, you know, that can actually um, help cure chronic liver disease. So that was done doing oh, wow. machine learning in data. Just by looking at the data of the patient. So that's amazing. So how did they, um, you know, when you have a data set like that, 
like how complicated is it for them to work around HIPAA or how did they get all those, uh, you know, how did they get all those genomes and phenomes? Like, like yeah. what was that process? Yeah, so everything has to be HIPAA compliant. We have to be super HIPAA compliant. Yeah. Like privacy is roughly half of what we do at Databricks. It's in every conversation. Mm. Uh, like if you're a data company, you might as well say you're a privacy company. Like it's, you can't be in the data space and not be dealing with privacy, HIPAA, you know, PCI, you know, FedRAMP, you know, those things all day long. Uh, so yeah, th these are anonymized data sets that they have access to that sort of completely hide uh, you know, the patients and you don't know who those patients are. Uh, but once you find the genome, you can start actually doing lab testing, clinical trials, where you can try to try if we target those particular genomes, can we, does it have an effect on the on the on the disease? So it seems like one day I'll be able to go in, you'll sequence my blood, sequence my genome, sequence my microbiome, and go, Ben, this is what's wrong with you. <laughs> like yeah, just like that, very accurately. Yeah. I don't think it's very far out in the future. I think you know we also work with. Uh, you know, a lot of the sort of the pharmacies that are sort of in the retail space, you know, retailers you go into, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know if I can mention yeah. their names, but you go in there and they have pharmacies that right there in the retail. I think in the future what will happen. You go in and you have a cold. They'll take your blood sample and they'll they'll give you the medicine that you need for your particular uh, based on your particular genomes. It'll be much more specialized. So personalized. The same way. Personalized, yeah, personalized for the medicine. exact cold Absolutely. you have and the exact genetics you have. Wow, that's a... Yeah, that'll be nice. Your <laughs> yeah, it's going to yeah. happen much sooner than people think. Yeah, it's pretty amazing because, you know, you think about a doctor, like humans have trouble thinking in more than three dimensions. And then you've got uh, these, you know, highly, you know, thousands of dimensions of inputs that are all relevant. Uh, and now you can, you know, now we actually have the tools to deal with it. It's cool. It's it's probably the most exciting thing that's happening in AI is how it interacts with how we now have kind of an information model of biology that we can analyze with computers. <laughs> just it's just amazing. Yeah. Like to having yeah. <laughs> having grown up in the Stone Age, um, this is this is quite look, a thing. Look, we're pretty much most groups that use vaccines to develop vaccines for COVID mm -hmm. are using databricks behind the scenes. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, they're super secretive about this. They don't want to talk about it, but, uh, you know, this is, you know, they're all heavily doing genomics using data and AI, all these companies. And it's actually one of the biggest verticals I'm excited about. And it's one of the verticals that's doing really, really well. And it's a fast moving space and they're doing really, really well. So I think a lot will happen in this space in the next five years. Yeah, it's just incredible. Um, but that's so just what, one space. There's uh, lots uh, of others. Yeah. 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 So let, let's talk. Tell me about another space. Um, you know, take Comcast. If you have a remote control, Comcast remote control, there's a voice button on it. You can speak to it and tell it what's the weather, change the channel. You might take it for granted, but that's actually pretty advanced. All that data gets into the cloud. It goes into the database like else. They do machine learning on it. They actuate it and send it back. And then things happen to your TV. So that's, you know, we take that for granted now. That would have been sci-fi, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. In most of the sci-fi movies was that type of functionality. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some, some, some that surprised me, some use cases that I did not mm -hmm. expect people would use us for. Uh, a chat application that you know kids use, like you know, and they use machine learning to detect the language that people are typing in into the chat, and they can then classify mm -hmm. people's age based on the language you're using. 
So you might say I'm 13 years old, but our machine learning can say this is probably a 50 year old. And that way they flag that and they look at the texts to make sure to look for sexual predators. Uh, that's one of the use case I did not expect, you know, to people to use AI for. Uh, but that's a that's an awesome use case, and you know it, it can. Yeah, that is uh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's worried about the kids online. That's uh, yeah, that's or, amazing. Or, or Bechtel did this really cool thing, which they took a project that might cost you know billions of dollars to build over ten years, like a construction site that they built, and they took all the millions of pieces of equipment that's used to build the site, and then. They looked at the sequence in which you do it, which order do you put these different things to build these buildings. They fed it into Databricks and then figured out a way in which you would actually do it differently, a much more faster, more efficient ways. And you could save between 10 to $100 million on one construction project. And the fascinating thing when you watch the video is when the humans were building these buildings without the AI, they would actually look much more robotic. They would actually go very sort of grid-like, you know, step-by-step, left-to-right, you know, bottom-up. Right putting the you know, items one by one. Whereas the AI actually had a much more, looked much more randomized uh, way in which huh. you build the construction site. But if you follow the instructions of the AI of how you should do it, you save, you know, the project will be much faster done. You save 10 to $100 million on one construction site. Well, that's, that's wild. And is it like, what are some of the things that, um, you know, people can't yet do, but you think they will be able to do? You know, we talked a little about in the in the bio field, but like, how far can this go? I mean, it seems like it's helping us improve everything or get better at everything. Yeah, improve look, this is, is really, yeah, look, this is early days, I think, in this space. Mm-hmm. I think we have cu- customers we work with in every vertical you can imagine. And mm-hmm. there are use cases all over the place. So I really, really think this is day zero. Everything we will do will be touched by AI. You know, Mark said famously, uh, um, software is eating the world. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, software is creeping into everything we see, right? It's software is now in our cars, it's in our refrigerators, it's in a nest, it's in your watch. Uh, well, yeah. I think AI is going to eat all software. Wherever you have software, it can be done much more intelligently based on data. And mm-hmm. all the software can become much, much more intelligent. So there's going to be use cases everywhere. And we don't know all of them yet. It's just like, you know, now Clubhouse is a phenomenon. We didn't think of it five years ago or 10 years ago, but the internet enabled all these things. And there's new innovation still happening that we couldn't even have imagined. Same thing will happen with data and AI. So I don't actually know all the use cases we'll see, uh, but they'll be everywhere. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Cause I, re- you know, one of the reasons I got into computers is I realized very early on um, that one thing that the probably the thing that the early computers were best at were designing computers, <laughs> like better computers. And yeah. and that's kind of true for AI, where you can make better and better software through the use of AI from like a development testing, you know, optimizing every, every any aspect of it can get better uh, look, know, with these almost, techniques. Yeah, almost all software is stupid today, if you look at it. You have to click, you have to enter yeah. data, you have to copy it, you have to click again, you have to go there. It could do all of those things. And by the way, you're doing the same thing every time you do it. At your job, on your phone, the software you're using, you're just repetitively repeating the same thing. And it's just forcing you to do that over and over again. It could, based on time of day and what you've done in the past, it could totally do it for you and be much more intelligent. So that's what I mean. All software will be sort of eaten by AI. So what else, will AI get rid of? Like, there's a lot of talk that, oh, my God, we're going to not have any jobs um, once AI gets good enough 
Um, but you know, we're kind of nine years in uh, to AI working, and it seems like there's still lots of jobs. So, what happens in the future? Well, it's funny you ask that because you know people say, "Oh my God, all the jobs are going away. It's yeah. a big threat to mankind," and so on. Every company I talk to. I go to them and I say, hey, we have awesome technology, please buy it from us. And they say, no, no, we don't need that. We need help finding people who can do this stuff. We need to hire more people who can do this stuff. <laughs> we have a shortage yeah. of people who can do data science and machine learning. Do you know those people? And I'm like, well, I'm not in the business of recruiting. Well, that's the problem yeah. we have, we need more people. So it's kind of, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting paradox that on the one hand, people are complaining jobs are going away, but all I see is people asking for more of these people that they want to hire that can do this. So I think just jobs will be transformed. The jobs will be different. All these jobs yeah. will have more AI in them. Everything you do, whether you're an accountant or you know, you're a salesperson or if you're in marketing, whatever you're doing for a living, it's, you're going to have more AI in your work. And the good news is it's going to remove and automate a lot of the mundane things, the parts that you probably hate about yeah, your job. Yeah, no, it, it, it is really kind of like an amazing thing with automation because if you go kind of the full arc of automation way back to the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, We've all we've done is kind of automate jobs. So, you know, we automated away like 90% of the farming jobs and we've automated jobs and we've automated jobs, but there are more and more jobs. Um, and it yeah. just, I think it's a tribute to human creativity. And I think, you know, one of the things that screws it up is it's really easy to predict which jobs will go away. Like it was really easy yeah. to kind of predict all the typesetting jobs would go away with computers and desktop publishing, but it was very hard to predict that 3 million graphic design jobs would be created. <laughs> like nobody even knew what that was. And, you know, and, and people forget about all the jobs that are gone, like the, you know, the refrigerator freezer eliminated the ice delivery job, which was actually quite a big job and a high employer at one time. Um, but yeah, humans are ingenious. And I think uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes uh, predicted um, that, you know, once the basic needs were met, that people would only work like 20 hours a week. Uh, and that turned out to be wrong also. <laughs> we're working. Yeah, look at all of these innovations. Had. And we have more yeah. jobs than we've ever had. Yeah. yeah, unemployment was the lowest ever in the United States just before the pandemic, uh, historically, right? And yet there's been all these innovations with AI, with machine learning, with computers, the data revolution, digital transformation, you know, with PCs. Um, you know, with cars, trains, you name it, uh, still yeah. unemployment was its lowest. I mean, here's how, here's another way to view it. Here's how I think of it. Mm -hmm. What does mankind yeah. need at the basic level? What are the basic ingredients that we absolutely need to survive, right? We need food very few. to survive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right? We need education. Uh, you know, we need healthcare. Uh, we need housing and roof over head, our heads. And, you know, if you want to understand, is AI actually going to be really bad for mankind? You would look at, is it actually at the fundamental level hurting any of the basic things that we need in life? And the truth is, no, it's not hurting any of these. In fact, it can help in every one of these, right? Like education, you can automate a lot of that stuff. Healthcare, we give a lot of examples. You know, housing, I give the Bechtel, food, so on. So there's, there's so it can't, it's actually not at the fundamental level hurting anything. So then it's it's more of a question of you know uh, you know how it's being used, but at the fundamental level it's just good. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. No, really uh, interesting. That's a tool for for doing things kind of better, more efficiently, smarter, more accurately. 
Um, it is interesting that I always feel like people should be more worried about other technologies we're delivering, like armed drones. <laughs> but you know, that's a different <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> um, so that's a very rosy picture of the future. Uh, but is it like, will everything get better? What about, you know, there's inequality um, and, you know, these kinds of things uh, and the kind of the balance of wealth. Does AI kind of exacerbate that or make it better or is it neutral or how do you think about that? Well, the AI itself is neutral, right? It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's, as I said, it doesn't hurt the basic needs of mankind. It doesn't hurt them and it actually improves all of them. It's true that if the, job, if, if the innovation all end up just going enriching very few people and, you know, yeah, then that's not great for those people that didn't get a piece of it. Uh, so then it becomes a wealth distribution problem, and that's a political matter, and I'm not a politician, uh, but that has nothing to do with the AI per se. I mean, any change in society that ever happens can hurt some groups or hurt some groups, uh, yeah, and yeah. we should make sure that it's done in a way that's equitable for everybody, but that's, that's nothing to do with the AI itself. That's any change that ever happens, and, you know. Yeah, but, to... yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, good. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say, you know, the... the the thing that I think is pretty clear on AI is it's going to create much more wealth. So there will be more wealth in the world. And then how it gets carved up and divided is a different question. But there will be more food. There will be more quality medicine. There will be more kind of everything, all things of everything good. And, uh, you know, like generally um, that's good for everybody, uh, you know, even if somebody gets, you know, too much in your opinion or whatever. Uh and I, I think people, you know, it's easy to lose sight of that, that the world getting no, richer I agree is with that. for everybody. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah. The productivity is, GDP and productivity increase uh, will be hugely helped by AI, right? It's, it's leading to huge productivity gains that will benefit all these yeah. countries. Uh, absolutely. So lots of wealth is going to be created by that. And that's good. You know, we can, we can technological improvements like that can help us eradicate poverty. Uh, you know, it doesn't guarantee that we do it. There's definitely a way to screw it up uh, if you use it the wrong way. But uh, it's definitely huge, hugely uh, beneficial for mankind that we actually continue the technological progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what, is, what does that look like 10 years from now? So, you know, um, so the world's going to be much richer. Things are going to be, you know, things that were hard and expensive are getting cheaper. I mean, this is one of the things that I think gets missed a lot in the world is that we've kind of gotten to equality on a lot of the things that technology has touched. So transportation is far, far more equal than it's ever been in that, you know, amazing, like the best car in the world is a Tesla and they've got like relatively cheap models um, and, you know, just amazing. Entertainment is basically equal. Anybody can get unlimited, like amazing, like incredible entertainment from you know, places like Netflix and various games and so forth. And and it's gotten like radically like the, the poorest person in America's kind of access to entertainment is better than the richest person's was maybe 30 years ago. And same thing with information and knowledge. I mean, the uh, anybody with a smartphone's got better than having full access to the Library of Congress, you know, 30 years ago, which is quite amazing. So technology has made the things that it's hit very equal. Things that it hasn't hit like housing and uh, university access and things like that are kind of unequal. Um, but 
hopefully we'll get to those at some point as well. But like, what does the world look like 10 years from now? Yeah, I, you know, I totally agree with the things that you're saying. I think, uh, first of all, I think we all have to get data literate. Data literacy mm -hmm. will have to go up. I think all the jobs that exist today will require you to be a little bit more data literate. And you're going to see more data yeah. science and automation creeping into the job, especially in the service sector. And I actually think, uh, you know, a lot of the white-collar jobs are the ones that, you know, you'll see. You, you need to actually uh, learn how this works and how it affects you. And uh, for sure, uh, that's going to be everywhere. But also you're going to see... Um, a lot of basically anything that's mundane in the day-to-day -day work that people do today is going to get automated away. Um, yeah, well, if we could just that's, switch, that's good. Yeah. If, if we could switch having to be data literate to having to be meme literate, then everybody would be in good shape because everybody seems to be <laughs> up on all the memes, if not all the data. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so one of the other kind of uh, like really successful AI infrastructure companies, um, or at least data infrastructure companies, is a company called Snowflake. So, do you compete with them? And if so, like how? How is that going to work? How is that going to unfold? Yeah, um, it's a great company. Um, they're also in this data space. Uh, you know, there's many things in common. They're in the cloud, just like we are. They let you process massive, massive amounts of data. Uh, they, what they provide mainly is they've built this thing called the data warehouse uh, for the cloud. Uh, and, and what does that mean? What's a data warehouse like as opposed the, to a yeah, data lake the, or data bricks? <laughs> yeah, so look, it, uh, it basically means that if you could, all this data that's sitting in these databases that people built, uh, the Oracle mm -hmm. databases that are sitting in all these organizations, if you could take all that structured data and you could collect it in a centralized location, called the data warehouse. Uh, then you could start asking questions about the data. You could ask questions about the past. You can ask, what was my revenue last week? Or how much did I sell of this product? Or how is my sales in that country versus this country? Or how is this seller doing versus that? That's called business intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that's the, mm -hmm. primary, that's the primary application of data warehouses. And that's, that's what Snowflake does phenomenally well. And they've built probably the best one in the market, one of the best ones in the market, maybe the best one. Uh, to do exactly and why is that? Questions. And then why is that not enough for artificial intelligence and uh, kind of figuring out, like as Facebook did, who's going to break up with whom and um, that kind of thing? Or, or, or like yeah. figuring out a new drug for liver cancer? Yeah, so these are questions about the past. Those questions you mentioned are about mm -hmm. the future. Who is going to break up uh, with who in the future? Which customer is going to churn tomorrow? What's my revenue going to be mm -hmm. in one quarter? What tweet should I show you right now to get your attention? Uh, that's future-looking predictive questions. And those data sets that are for that, those are not the data sets that sit in Oracle. A lot of it is mm. video images, audio images, text online, you know, how you click. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is highly unstructured. It's really high volume. It's what people call sparse data sets. And you can't mm -hmm. store those in actually uh, any data warehouse today. You know, none of them really allow you to really store it in the classic way in the data warehouse. Uh, so these data sets, almost all of it lives today in what's called data lakes, which are these really massive uh, containers where you can just dump all of these data sets, uh, audio, video, and it's exabytes after exabytes. And today in the cloud, absolute vast majority of the data sits in these data lakes. And the small portions of it that's structured, but very val valuable, moves into these data warehouses to ask questions about the past. But the future-looking questions, they're these kind of much more massive data sets, and the more, the better. Uh, and that's just not easy to use data warehouses for that today. Hmm. 
got it, got it. So how do you end up competing with them? Because they must want to do bigger data things, and I imagine you want to look at the past as well as the future. So how, do, how does that going to shape up? Yeah, look, our focus is on the AI. So these data warehouses don't have any AI. All the stuff we discussed in this hour, you can't get that mm -hmm. in any of these data warehouses, right? So as I said, it's amazing data warehouse. It doesn't have any of the AI capabilities. You can't do AI, you can't do machine learning, you can't predict the future. It doesn't mm -hmm. even have these capabilities. They, and I don't think they really, you know, if, if you actually try the product, it doesn't. They'll say, use a partner or do something like that. So that's the difference between the companies. So the companies don't actually compete today and they coexist. Mm -hmm. In absolutely almost every enterprise you go, they coexist, the two companies. And it's much less competitive than people like to make it. Because uh, we focused a lot on the AI asking questions about the future and doing predictions on the future. They focus a lot mm -hmm. on answering those questions about the past, which are still very valuable for businesses. Uh, and then there's some overlap in the, in the middle that's going to increase over time. But here's the thing. This market for asking questions and predicting the future is absolutely huge. It's going to be vastly huge in the next 10 years. It might be one of the biggest markets yeah. we've ever seen. Like the applications are going to be everywhere and they're going to transform these companies just the same way Google used AI to disrupt all the search engines. Like if Google didn't have AI, they wouldn't be around today. Uh, if yeah. Facebook didn't have AI, they wouldn't be around today. It wouldn't be like you would just list your friends with some pictures in it. If tw Twitter didn't have AI, it wouldn't be around today. Like you wouldn't be uh, glued to it. Um, in fact, Clubhouse, the fact that we all join a channel, it's because we get recommended that, hey, you know, Ben Horowitz is there. Would you want to join too? So that's all using AI. Um, I don't know if that's a selling point or not. <laughs> it is. So in the future, that market will be much bigger. Uh, yeah. So over time, that will be a much bigger market. The data warehousing market is maybe 10 to $15 billion. Uh, it's mm -hmm. all moving into the cloud. So it's a great business for Snowflake and other vendors to tap into that as it's moving into the cloud. Uh, but once you have that, that's actually not the market that's growing that fast year over year. So in the long run, the AI uh, market will be much bigger. And we have a head start there. We're very focused on that. Yeah, interesting. So how do you, how do you kind of make sure that you keep innovating and, and kind of doing the right things as you kind of go after this gigantic problem and this big market? Like, how do you think about it from kind of going back to boss talk? Like from a boss perspective, how do you think about building the organization so that you can innovate going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. So building in innovation into the DNA of the company uh, means hiring people that actually do uh, think about how to actually innovate and think outside the box. So a lot of them are mm -hmm. product sort of innovators. They're sitting in engineering oftentimes and, you know, giving them a way in which they can actually experiment with their ideas and building those things, uh, you know, pretty much. Every great thing we shipped at Databricks came in an, came out of an internal hackathon that we did. So really encouraging mm -hmm. the engineers to think outside the box and being creative. I, I really mean it. Like most of our killer features were developed in hackathons by our engineers, and it was actually done by engineers. And, and how do you how do you know whether you should pursue like something developed in a hackathon? And then how do you well, organize to go pursue that? Yeah. Well, first of all, we organize our hackathons so that they happen just slightly before we plan the next quarter's work. So we take the good mm -hmm. ones and productionize them and roll them out to the customers. But your data, I mean, first of all, it's pretty obvious. When they build really amazing things, it's pretty clear immediately. Like that's 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 a killer feature. Mm -hmm. That's like so much easier. That's automating things. That's but what if removing a lot of headaches that, you know, I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, right? This ecosystem is it's there's not much there. So if you can automate it and make it simpler, it helps hugely. But we're also super data driven, right? So we're a data driven company, we do machine learning, we do predictions, so we track how people are using it. So we roll it out to a few customers. 
and we see what the uptake is. Mm -hmm. And that's called private preview. And then we collect data, and then we see how they're actually using it. It's all, it, it all has these metrics. We do machine learning on those metrics. We analyze them. It goes out every Friday. And then we pick up the ones that are working, and then we, you know, we broaden it to more people, more people, and then eventually it's a public preview, and then eventually you roll it out to all the customers. So we track the usage. I stare every Friday on exactly every feature, most features that have been developed in Databricks, which ones are having uptake. So that's one. But you also need to hire the people that can actually innovate. And you need to get the best people in the market. And I think in 2000, I think it was 2016 or 17 when we raised money from you guys, from A16Z. And um, I remember, I think Mark asked, How are you, what's your biggest bottleneck in the company? What's your biggest challenge? And I said, it's getting the great talent. It's fighting over the right talent. And so why is that so hard? And I said, well, you're competing always with Google and Facebook. It's always Google and Facebook that's getting the best engineers. And it's hard to pay them. It's hard to compete with them. I think Mark said, uh, well, you should just become one of them then. And then he said something like, FangDB, haha. And, and then he paused a few seconds and I said, ah, you can do it. You can get there. You're close enough that you can get all the way there. And frankly speaking, that kind of encouraged us to go back and say, yeah, how, how do we compete head to head? How do we get the best talent on the planet? And the first thing we realized is, oh, you know, we got to pay up. So let's pay 90th percentile or more for the engineering talent and let's go head to head and let's compete with on compensation and let's get the best engineers we can possibly get that they have. Uh, let's also make sure that we have a culture that's uh, good for our engineers. So balancing, you know, how much sales driven you are versus how technology and R&D. So balancing those two so that they're sort of equal. Uh, Larry Page always had this thing. Don't make sure that sales doesn't become way bigger than uh, engineering. Trying to balance those two so you have a balance of those two. And then let them work on things that excites them. You know, the, the number one thing they want to work on is working with other smart people like themselves. So if you get the flywheel of really smart intelligent people that are innovative, they want to work with other people like, that are like that. So that becomes a flywheel on its own. Uh, open source project is another great way. All the big forward tech digital native companies in Silicon Valley, they double down on open source technology and they do a lot of open source work. We do that too and that's also great. So that's another way to uh, capture a lot of talent. Uh, so do all these things and make, it, make sure that it's a great place for them to come and innovate. Um, the final thing is we cheat. So many of us are faculty at these universities and we work at these places. So, you know, we, yeah. we pick the best talent as they come out. So we know who's who the best folks are. So the, you know, future genius kids, uh, we try to hire them as soon as possible uh, early on. Uh, so that's another thing that we do. Uh, so it's super important for us to, to do this well um, because frankly, the software we have written today doesn't really matter. It's a software that will exist in 10 years. That's going to be much more important than what exists today. And that's the software that those uh, engineers and the innovators will create in the next decade at Databricks. So we've spent a lot of energy thinking about that. <laughs> so, some of them are still undergraduates at UC Berkeley, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, we try to work them early. All right, well, we're yeah. right up on the hour. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this week's episode of Boss Talk. Um, we enjoyed talking. I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, thank you to... Uh, Felicia and DU and, and Jules and everybody and Chris who came up and uh, and talked uh, and helped us get the room started. And uh, we will see you next week. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks, Ben, Felicia, and everyone, and Mark. <laughs>